Abraham, he said, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so we get the message right from the start of this chosen people, Israel, that somehow through them, blessing is going to come to all the peoples of the world. Three generations later, to one of Abraham's great grandsons, the promise was made. It was uh, Judah was his name, the son of Jacob. This promise. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Genesis 49. Someday, the blessing promised through Abraham is going to come to the world through a person to whom all the nations will give obedience. So there we get the promise of a ruler through the house of Judah. A few hundred years later, God sends to the people of Israel a king named David, who was born, no accident, of the house of Judah. And the promise made to David through the prophet Nathan was this. I will raise up your offspring after you, who will come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And so not only do we know now that a blessing is coming through the people of Israel to all the nations, that it comes through the house of Judah, but now we know it's going to be a king. It's going to sit on the throne of David, his father. And then the prophet Isaiah gets more specific. Chapter 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, The government will be upon his shoulder and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forever. So a child will be born, a marvelous counselor, an everlasting father. He will reign forever on the throne of David. The prophet Micah makes it very specific. He says, But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are a little to be, who are little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from of old and from ancient days. So the blessing was to come to all the nations through Abraham. It would be through the house of Judah. King David was of the house of Judah, and he said it would be on my throne. It would be a child born as a wonderful counselor, and that child would be born in Bethlehem, and he would be of origin, the ancient of days. All of this 700 years before Jesus was born. How? How would a king reigning on David's throne bring blessing to all the nations? God told Isaiah 700 years before Christ these words. Looking into the future, he said, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that made us whole, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So the way the blessing was going to come through this anointed ruler and king is that he would die. 
And he wouldn't die for his own sins. He would die for the sins of many. And the sins would be taken off of us and put onto him. And by his stripes, we would be made whole. And by his being appointed guilt and condemnation, we would be justified. And the last question then, 700 years before Jesus was born is, so he's dead. What good can a dead man do for you? And God didn't leave that either for the future. He went on in that very same chapter, Isaiah 53, and prophesied the resurrection of Jesus like this. God said, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death. In other words, he's not dead anymore. He's alive. He's dividing the spoil with the strong. Jesus conquered death. He takes the spoils of death. He divides them to all his people and he reigns over death and over all that he triumphed over in his dying. And he rose again. And so there's the Old Testament story. The New Testament story. A blessing to come to all the nations through Abraham. Through the house of Judah. On the throne of David, a child to be born, a wonderful counselor, born in Bethlehem, born to die for the sins of others, born and to die to rise again, reign forever and ever. All that 700 years before it was born. And so I say to you, Jesus was not, when he came, a rabbit out of the historical hat. Whoa, look at this miracle. No explanation for this. I thought it was a canary. It's not like that. It's, oh, finally, yes, yes, I see. It was all prepared for. Hundreds and thousands of years, a loving God tending over his people, pouring prophecy and insight and wisdom and pointers and foreshadowings toward the one who would come, his son. And so when I unpack for you this morning, or unwrap for you this morning, the best gift of all, Jesus, it's not a surprise. God's been working for a long time to make Jesus known and understandable in the world. The two verses that I want to read as my center focus on the treasure of Jesus at the end of this long treasure hunt is Acts chapter 13. If you have a Bible, you can read it with me. If you don't, you can just listen. Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. And as I was meditating on these verses in the last several days, I thought I must begin this sermon with the story before the story because that's the way Paul began the sermon. Who's preaching? Paul is preaching it. And he began the sermon by telling the story before the treasure. Verse 29, he said Jesus died according to prophecy. Verse 30, he said he was raised from the dead. Verse 31, he said that he appeared to many eyewitnesses. And then in verses 32 to 37, he says that with three Old Testament prophecies, you can know that he'll never die again because he rose from the dead. And now we come to verses 38 and 39, which are such a magnificent climax to the sermon that Paul is preaching. And I want them to be the climax to my message, namely the content of the gift, Jesus Let's read verses 38 and 39. 
Let it be known to you, therefore, brethren, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone that believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Everyone who believes is freed. Jesus means freedom. If you have an NIV version, it says justified. And that's right. It is the word acquitted, absolved, declared innocent, condemnation taken away, sent out into the bright sunlight of the meadow after being held in a dungeon for trial. And the judge says, another has taken your place. I count you now innocent. You may go. In fact, you may go forever in joy. That's the idea here. Freedom in Jesus from all sin and guilt. But notice carefully. It says, everyone who believes is freed. Everyone who believes is freed. There's the requirement, belief. Everyone who believes is freed this morning. And so, what I want to happen as I bring this message to a close is for you to believe and be freed. And I thought, now how, how can I motivate people to trust Jesus? I can say how the gift is worth so much. I can show the prophecies. And this is what I believe the Lord wants me to do. I think the Lord wants me to, to tell you seven reasons why I believe based on this text. And you just sit there and listen and ask with each one, could I do that? Does that reason for his belief commend itself to me for my belief? Reason number one. I believe in Jesus. I trust Jesus because I know that I have sinned grievously against God and need to be forgiven. You know, when Paul preached this sermon and he came to verse 38, he just said, you might think it presumptuous if you didn't know your own heart. He just said, forgiveness is declared in his name. Looking at everybody. You know, and nobody in the synagogue stood up and said, I've never sinned. And I don't think anybody right now is going to stand up and say, I've never sinned. Anybody want to do that right now? You can if you want. Why? Is it because you're too timid to stand? No, it's because you're honest. Everybody sins. Everybody has fallen short of the glory of God. It's only our own conscience we require to know that. You go to bed at night and it's hard to sleep, not because you think of God necessarily, but because you think, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't want to do that. I hate the way I talked at work today. I hate what I said to my wife. I hate the way I treated my kids. I feel so rotten 
just on my own standards, not to mention the glorious, holy, perfect, innocent, righteous God who gave the conscience to me. We all know we're sinners. It's just our own conscience that tells us. And therefore, my first reason for believing in an offer like I have here in this text from one who fulfilled such matchless promises is that I need forgiveness. We need forgiveness. We need to be freed. Guilt and condemnation lies on us like a heavy weight. Secondly, I trust Jesus because the very best moral instruction and the very best religious ritual will not free me from my sin. And therefore, I trust Jesus. And here's what I mean. If you look in verse 39, it says that by Him you can be freed from everything from which you could not be freed in the law of Moses. Now, the law of Moses is God's law. It's the best law in the world. It's God's law. And the religion of Moses is God's religion. And so, if you want moral instruction, if you think moral instruction is good for you and can set you free and solve your problems, go to Moses. Read the Old Testament. It's the best you can find in the universe. And if you think religion will lift the blanket of depression and discouragement and guilt off your heart, go to the religion of Moses. It's the best religion there is. But Paul, who knew that religion from the inside out, it was written all over his face and all over his heart, said, there are so many things from which Moses cannot deliver you. Why? Because moral instruction and religious observance don't do anything to my sin. You know it doesn't. People try to go to church. People try to read their Bibles. People try to keep their nose clean. People try to do special kinds of religious rituals, all because we feel so guilty and so oppressed. And what does it do? Zero. It does zero. Sin is not budged by religion. Sin isn't budged by moral instruction. Tell me how I'm going to be free from my sin by telling me to be free from my sin. Do I have to be free from my sin in order to get freedom from my sin? Somehow lift my own guilt and get to God so that He'll then receive me? It won't work. And that's why I believe in Jesus. Paul tells me, and I thank God for the Bible, that it tells me I don't have to spend my whole life trying to get rid of my sin by religion. I can just start by going to Jesus, the person who bore it for me. The third reason I believe is because God spent centuries putting into place a reliable provision for forgiveness. That's why I began this message the way I did. God spent centuries getting ready for Jesus. Why? Why did he do that? Why wasn't Jesus just like a rabbit out of the hat? With no preparation, no prophecies, no forewarning, no people. Why? Because God wanted to say, it's my idea. I've been working at this for centuries. I've been teaching. I've been preparing. I've been prophesying. I've been nurturing a people. I've been putting in place pieces so that when he comes, people who have eyes to see will say, oh, yes. God did it. This is God's idea. Jesus is God's son. Jesus is the fulfillment of all that. 
so that when I come to face the question of whom I stake my life on and what I'm going to believe in in order to solve my sin problem, I am very happy to have one who has behind him a megaton of prophecy saying, He's coming, He's coming, He's coming. So that when He comes, we can say, Wow! God did this! God doesn't mean for you to leap into a, a blank void when you trust Jesus. It really doesn't. I don't want to commend that. That's not biblical faith. Shut your eyes, ignore the evidences, step out over the cliff. That's just not the way the Bible commends faith. The Bible says, look, look, look at all the clues leading to the treasure. Is this not a real treasure then? How could all of that have been had not this been real? So my third reason is because God put so many pieces in place that couldn't be explained any other way that I believe Him. I believe it's His Son. My fourth reason for believing in Jesus is that He was no mere man. He was God's Son. And therefore, the foundation of my forgiveness is infinitely solid. Had it been just another teacher, just another human, a sinner like me, who had come along and said, oh, I'll die. I'll die for, for sinners. I would not be impressed. The death of a mere man cannot bear the sins of the world. If one's death is to be worth the deliverance of millions of people who trust him, that death must be the death of a person of such worth as to compensate for all the glory of God that had been torn down by the sins of this saved people. And only one being could do it. God. The Son of God. The angel said to Mary, The child to be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so I believe in Jesus because the foundation provided for the forgiveness of my sins is not the foundation of any ordinary man's work. It's the foundation of the work of the very Son of God and therefore the pillars holding up the foundation of my forgiveness where I want to stand for all eternity are pillars that go down forever into the very being and the heart of God because it was His Son who laid the foundation. The fifth reason I believe Jesus is because he rose from the dead after three days and he will never die again. Now picture this for a minute. It's 15 years since the death of Jesus. Paul is preaching to people who probably had never heard this story before in Antioch of Pisidia, today's Turkey. Several hundred miles down now from Jerusalem where it all happened 15 years ago. And he's declaring Jesus rose from the dead, ascended and reigns with God and will come again. And I saw him. And others saw him. Now, had those people been skeptical, and they were, many of them, only a few believed, in fact, had they been skeptical and eager to find out, they could have formed a delegation, sent it down to Jerusalem, and what would you have told that delegation to do? What I would told that delegation to do was, you go to the Jewish authorities who do not believe 
in Jerusalem and you tell them to take you straight to that tomb and show you the body of Jesus. And we'll be done with this stupid, fanatical heresy that's going infecting Judaism all through the Roman world. So go down there and get that body. Now, they didn't do that and they couldn't do it because for 15 years people had wanted to do that and there was no body. Had there been a body in Jerusalem that could have been wheeled out in a wheelbarrow and said, here he is, so there for your big belief, Christians, they would have done it. Exhibit A, and they couldn't do it. And therefore, all kinds of myths and legends had to be created to explain for why these people were willing to die for a body they had hid. And they couldn't do it. It made no sense. And therefore, I believe Because Jesus is alive. And I believe that the foundation of my forgiveness is not only a solid foundation because the Son of God holds it up, but because He never dies. And therefore, as long as I have need, He will exist. I'll never live longer than the one who sustains and holds me up in forgiveness and freedom. And therefore, His everlasting life guarantees my everlasting joy. And I believe in My sixth reason for believing in Jesus is because that's all I can do. I mean, I can't work for Jesus. I can't earn forgiveness from Jesus. I can't merit it. I can't trade for it. I can't produce enough moral reform in order to get it because the lack of moral reform is precisely my problem. All I can do is believe. This morning, I'm I'm putting under your tree the gift of freedom and forgiveness from God. If somebody puts a gift under, under your tree because they love you, and you look at the gift, and you pick it up, and you realize this is going to be an incredibly valuable gift, and you have an idea what it might be, and you first say, Oh, quick, let me go shovel the, the walkway for you first. Let me go back to the office for about eight hours today and work hard. Oh, let me do something. Let me think of something I can do to earn this gift. I think the person would look at you and say, they might laugh with you and kind of try to settle you down, but I think deep inside they would say, wait a minute. Don't reject my gift. It's a G-I-F-T gift. Don't work for me. Don't insult me. As though I have no generosity, as though I have no love, as though I have no mercy, as though you don't matter to me. Don't try to work for me. F-R-E-E-G-I-F-T. It is a gift. All you can do is say thank you, receive it, put it in your lap, untie it, believe in it, rejoice over it, wear it. Everybody knows that. The only thing we can do this morning is believe. When God extends what we need like this, forgiveness and freedom. And my last, seventh reason for believing in Jesus is that this text gives a strong warning. I have everything to gain if I do and everything to lose if I don't. Verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest there come upon you what is said in the prophets, Behold, you scoffers, and wonder, and perish. 
That's the warning. Behold, if you scoff at the gift under the tree, you perish forever. If you believe and receive and accept and love and cherish and wear the gift under the tree, namely forgiveness and freedom from Jesus, you live forever. And therefore, my seventh reason for believing is I don't want to perish. I want to live forever. So I stand before you now saying I am not offering this gift as a perfect person, but as a forgiven person this morning. I love being forgiven. I love the freedom that comes into my life through Jesus Christ. Forgiven, John Piper. Not guilty. Home free. Go out there. Love. Serve. Relax. When you stumble, repent. Confess. I'll forgive it. You are home free. Rest in me. You are forgiven. I love being forgiven. And I want you to be forgiven. And the Bible says, to all who believe, you will be freed from everything which you could not be freed from in the law of Moses. So I close with three invitations. Number one, in your worship folder, there's a white card. I've misplaced mine, but I'll hold up this other one. There's a white card, Christmas response card. We're going to worship the Lord in song for about four more minutes. And during that time, I hope everybody could, can lay your, who can lay your hand on a pencil will, will fill that out. There's something there for everybody this morning to report to us what God might be doing in your life. So I hope you'll do that in the next three or four minutes. Then we're going to pass them to the aisles. That's my first invitation to fill that out and communicate with us what God's been doing in your life in this service. Second invitation is this. You see alongside that this little uh, beige leaflet on the class called Inquire. Now, I want to be real upfront with you. I do not believe in uh, arm wrestling people into the kingdom. Simple reason. I don't believe it's possible. I think God deals with people in different ways at different paces. And uh, I am sure there are many people in this room right now who are not believers in Jesus. And have heard my reasons and are saying, well, maybe, or no, or I'll have to consider that. This class called Inquire... We have specifically designed, because we know a lot of people that come to this church and are relatives of people in this church who are in that category. If you walk up to them, they won't lie to you. They'll say, I don't believe. And I like that. I like people like that. They don't pull the wool over your eyes, just say face to face, I'm not a Christian. I might be someday, but I'm not. Okay? I say, okay, fine. In fact, that's the only kind of people that can go to this class. We allow no believers into this class. If you're a believer, you may not come. One believer, Carl Schmuland, who at 39 years old, five years ago, as an engineer, believed. We'll teach the class. 
and you will set the agenda. Consider it. Read about it. If you have any questions, call us. If you know somebody in that category, tell them. We're up front. This is a class where only unbelievers go. And you can go to that class. It'll be on a Sunday morning. You don't have to come to the worship service if you don't want to. And there'll be no pressure whatsoever. I think it will be just the kind of thing that many people are looking for. My final invitation is simply what I said at the beginning. The prayer teams will be here to pray with you. If God has has touched you and you don't want to walk out of here without somebody praying with you and for you, Just let the other people filter out and you filter forward and find a prayer team and ask them to pray with you. Thank you so much for being with us. We're going to go to worship now and I'd like to pray and ask God to come and meet us in the last five minutes or so as we sing. Father, as we sing to your praise and as we look to you to work in our hearts, all of us need to move closer to Jesus. Some in this room need to move from outside to inside the kingdom. Some are on the quest from clue to clue looking for the treasure chest of their lives. And Lord, I pray that in your great patient love, you will draw near and take each of us closer now than where we've been in Jesus' name.